For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so the book of Acts, there's a lot of geography. There's a lot of dates. It's a, a, a coverage of a 30-year period from the death of Christ in about 33 AD, lasting through the first 30 years of the Christian church. And I promised you guys a timeline, so here it is. We got Paul's life. I've referred to a lot of these dates so far as we've gone through this book, but I think it's helpful to have them all in one place as we move into this next section of the book. One hard date we have is the death of Christ in 33 AD. That's a pretty, that's a pretty firm accepted date for the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Now, to fit the events that Paul talks about from his life, both from Acts and as well as biographical statements he makes in places like Galatians 1 and 2, it's kind of a tight window. There's a lot going on. And so really the conversion of, of Paul has to happen sometime within a year or so of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so that's probably late 33, sometime in early 34. We also read that he spent his first three years of his Christian life, he didn't even go down to Jerusalem. He was in and around the area of Damascus from 33 to maybe 36 AD or so. And we saw that when we studied Acts chapter 9. Finally, in 36, he goes down to Jerusalem. He meets the apostles. And he, there's, a, there's a threat on his life. And so he has to get out of Jerusalem. And he goes back to his hometown in the area of Tarsus. And these are what we talked about last week, the lost years of Saul's life. And, you know, what was he doing in this time? He was doing Christian work, learning how to serve God under the new covenant. Now, 46 AD or so, we said last week that's about when he arrived in the city of Antioch. Barnabas went and got him, and they served the Lord together, leading for about a year there in the city of Syrian Antioch. We looked at maps on this and everything last week. Um, Galatians says it's about 14 years from his conversion to when he went up to Antioch. And so, you know, it, counting part of a year as a year, like they often did, we're landing right around 46 AD. They spent a year at Antioch before going over to Jerusalem with that money for the famine. They headed back. We know, though, that the, the event we're going to study in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, has to happen in around 49 AD because of some events and some historical figures that we learn about on the second missionary journey. Yeah, part of the way we do chronology is when sometimes the Bible will come across and it will mention secular figures who we know about from other historical sources. So when it mentions Gallio at Corinth, we know Gallio, we know who he was, and we know when he was at Corinth, and we know it's a very short time that Paul runs into on the second missionary journey. And so we kind of date backward from there and forward from the date we know of the, the death and resurrection of Christ, and we got to fit all these events into the meantime there. So what that leaves us with is a window of maybe less than a year, maybe a year and a half or so for this first missionary journey that we started studying last week and that we're going to finish up with this week. And so the events of tonight are going to take place somewhere around 47 or 48 AD, and they're going to end up where they started, back in the city of Syrian Antioch. Just to remind you of our geography as well, they started last week in Antioch. They went down through Cyprus and up to another city called Antioch, up in what's called Pisidian Antioch, the region of Pisidia. And so last week we saw them go from Antioch to Antioch. And they ended up there in Antioch, preaching the gospel at the synagogue. And that's where we left 
our adventurers last week. And we'll pick up where we left off, at the end of their speech. They went into the Jewish synagogue. They said, why don't you come forward and speak? And he gave a long speech recounting the, the prophecies, the Old Testament leading right up to Jesus Christ and called on them to do this. He said, brothers, listen, we're here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there's forgiveness for your sins. That's the heart of the Christian good news. It's Jesus because of what he has done, because he died on the cross. We don't have to pay the penalty for our sins, but he can pay it for us. And he offers you forgiveness. Everyone who believes in him is declared right with God. That's not something you can earn, but you have to put your trust in him. It's by faith alone that we're forgiven. And God declares you to be right. And he says that's something the law of Moses could never do. There's no amount of good works, like religion says, do good works to be right with God. Christianity says, no, the law could never do this. It's faith alone. And that's what he calls his audience to do. He's talking both to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles who had shown up at the, at the synagogue. And then he ends his sermon on kind of a downer. He says, be careful. Don't let the prophet's words apply to you. For they said, look, you mockers, be amazed and die. <laughs> he says, you mock this message? Well, there's two things that are going to happen to you. You're going to be amazed and then you're going to die. God says, I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, chapter one, verse five. He says, you want to mock this message, you're going to regret it. Instead, you should receive this message. Put your faith in it. And if you're sitting here tonight, the same thing applies to you. Receive this message, this good news. Place your faith in Jesus. Well, as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again the next week. They were loving it. They couldn't get enough of this good news that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. So imagine somebody standing up and giving a long sharing at the end of CT, and everybody's like, that was so good. Can you come back and talk next week? And then you go home and you tell all your friends. And the next week, oh, and, and it, even in the meantime, it says many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So they, they had a number of people receive Christ right there and, and during that week. And what did Paul and Barnabas tell them to do? They urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. They said, don't turn back to works. The grace of God, that's where you need to put your full weight. And that's going to be an issue in the Galatian churches. And if we read the letter to the Galatians, you're going to see this is exactly what Paul is arguing in our New Testament. Well, the next week, they show up at synagogue, and almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. Man, imagine how I would feel if somebody shares at CT, and everybody's like, that guy was awesome. And the next week, I show up, and there's 20,000 people at CT. I think I might feel a little jealous. I think that's how they felt as well. When some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. They're like, this guy talks once and now everybody wants to come to synagogue to hear them? They felt threatened by what Paul and Barnabas were saying. So they slandered Paul and they argued against whatever he said. So he, he can't talk because he keeps getting interrupted with slander and arguments. Well, finally, Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly and they declared, they've had enough of this. And they said, look, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. That was their strategy. They go to the synagogue. They speak to the Jews who were, knew the scriptures, were expecting the Messiah. But since you've rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to offer it to the Gentiles. Look, God's got good news for anybody that wants it. 
And notice what he says there. How do you, get, how do you become worthy of eternal life? By being a good person? No, by accepting the message. How, do you be, how, how can you be declared unworthy of eternal life? By rejecting the good news, by rejecting Christ and his offer of forgiveness. That's like the only unforgivable sin. For the Lord, he says, gave us this command when he said in the prophet Isaiah, I've made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. Yes, even Isaiah said, we're going out to the far corners and we're going to tell the non-Jews about the light of God. Turns out to be Jesus Christ. When the Gentiles heard this, they were understandably very glad and they thanked the Lord for this message. They're happy to receive Christ. They can't believe it. They can't believe this is such good news. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. You see statements like this in the New Testament. This is the doctrine of of election, the doctrine of chosenness, the doctrine of predestination. Now, you also have to look at the other statements about predestination in the New Testament, which say that God chooses people from before the foundations of the world, but it says he chooses them according to his foreknowledge. I guess when, when you're God, you have foreknowledge. You, somehow you know the end from the beginning. He can see, I guess, your whole life before you've even lived it, before you're even created, before he created anything. And somehow, based on his foreknowledge of you, he will either choose you or not choose you. I imagine it's because he knows how you're going to respond freely to the offer of forgiveness. And so if you're a Christian here tonight, if you've received Christ, then that means that's how you know that God chose you from before the beginning of the world. Think about it. Some of us have never been really chosen for anything. And now we have the creator God choosing us before the foundation of the world. Feels pretty good. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. And so not only did they they reach this city, and this implies they spent some time here. They reach the city, but then it begins to trickle out into the whole surrounding region. And we're going to see this from Paul later in his ministry as well, where they'll reach a city. And then from there, that becomes their base to reach the smaller towns and villages out in the countryside. You can see Paul's missionary methods forming here on this first missionary journey. Well, the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. So one thing we can learn from Paul is sometimes when they get a mob together against you, that's how you know it's time to leave. (laughs) He didn't always stay and fight, okay? Sometimes wisdom says, get out of there, and that's what they did. So they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection. That's exactly what Jesus told them to do. It's like, look, we told you the message. You didn't want it. We're just going to leave it all here with you, and you you can do what you want with it. We've done our job. And they went to the town of Iconium. Iconium. But it says the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So even though they had to leave, they'd been there long enough to leave together, uh, leave behind a healthy Christian community, full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit. Well, here's Iconium. You can see they were at Antioch, and then they walk another 90 miles down to Iconium, down this very nice main east-west road through there, the Emperor's Road. And they end up, it would have been a several-day journey, in the city of Iconium, which was also a major cultural center, much like Pisidian Antioch. Well, it says at Iconium, they went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. That was their custom. 
And there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So they're reaching not just Jews, but Gentiles again. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So you've got real receptiveness and serious opposition. And so it says, they decided that's pretty good reason for us to spend considerable time here speaking boldly for the Lord. Good harvest, big opposition, that means we're going to stay here for a while. God then confirmed his message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And so again, like we see in Acts, the miracles are giving credibility to the message. These are not just miracles for the sake of miracles, but they're miracles to confirm the truth of what they were speaking. Well, again, the people in this city were divided. Some sided with the Jewish opposition, others with the apostles. And so you've got this polarizing message. We see this today. You tell people about Jesus. Even Jesus had this. He would go teach, and some people would be like, this is amazing. And other people would be like, you're an idiot. (laughs) And um, same message, very different responses. Depends on the person. I don't know what kind of person you are. You going to side with the message of Christ, or are you going to um, reject it? Well, they found out there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and to stone them. Yes, stoning. This is where, uh, typically fatal, they, take, they would actually drag you outside of town to a high, some sort of a high place. They'd toss you off. And the hope was that you'd fall and like break your neck and die right there. But if not, then the first, you need at least two witnesses. They'd get a big heavy stone. They would both toss that stone over on top of you. And then everybody else would would throw heavy stuff on you until you were dead. And Paul and Barnabas heard plans were being hatched to do that very thing to them. And so what do they do? Stay and fight? Nope. They found out about it and they fled to the cities of Lyconia which were Lystra and Derby, and also to the surrounding country. Now, here we come. Oh, yeah, where they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, at this point, we come to kind of an important historical note. It says they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby. Well, this, is, this used to be thought as one of the many inaccuracies of the book of Acts, that it was just some sort of fiction made up about the early church by somebody in 150 or 200 A.D., Adith Fernando talks about Sir William Ramsey. I mentioned him last week, uh, one of the pioneers of modern archaeology who spent many decades in the early, early 1900s exploring Turkey and the, and the ancient Mediterranean area, trying to learn about the history of that area. And here's what Fernando says about William Ramsey. When Ramsey came to Acts 14.6, the verse we just read, he thought he'd found a predictable error by the author. It read, they fled from Iconium to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby, and to the surrounding country. Well, the common view among scholars at the time, based on material by Cicero and Pliny the Elder, from about a century before the New Testament era, was that Iconium was a city in Lyconia. So how can you leave Iconium to go to Lyconia when Iconium's in Lyconia? Ramsey thought that the author of Acts had used Xenophon, right, the 4th century BC Greek historian. You know Xenophon, right? <laughs> he thought he was using Xenophon instead of the more accurate sources like Pliny the Elder and Cicero. 
Well, Zeno, uh, Ramsey assumed that Luke, not knowing about his re the region, he took information from Xenophon and transposed it to the first century. And by that time, the boundaries shifted, so it was no longer true. It was, says Ramsey, like speaking of going from Richmond to Virginia or from London to England. It's like they left London and went to England. It's like, you know, only an idiot would write that, somebody that doesn't know the geography of England. But as Ramsey investigated the matter further, he found that Acts was actually entirely correct. In the first century, Iconium was indeed a city in Phrygia, not in Lyconia, for only a period of about 35 years, from 37 to 72 AD. But that's when this narrative takes place. He notes, too, the author of Acts mentioned that the people of Lystra spoke in the Lyconian language. Luke, what an idiot. There's no Lyconian language. Actually, there was. <laughs> Inscriptions demonstrated that Phrygian was spoken in Iconium until the end of the second century. What about the description of the, the gods of the people of Lystra were Zeus and Hermes? Well, that's exactly what he found. His research, he realized Zeus and Hermes were commonly regarded in that region as associated gods. Witherington elaborates on the Zeus and Hermes point. He says, an inscription's found near Lystra with a dedication to Zeus of a statue of Hermes. Another inscription speaks of the priests of Zeus. And even more telling is a stone altar near Lystra dedicated to the hero of prayer, i.e. Zeus and Hermes. Keep that in mind. Lyconian language, Zeus and Hermes. Keep this in mind too. Ovid's Metamorphoses, a collection of short stories written in 8 AD, talks about an incident in the Phrygian hill country, right in the, Lystra, the area of Lystra, where Zeus and Hermes dressed up, pretended to be this old couple, and they went around from door to door saying, can we stay here with you? People were like, get out of here. Well, finally, somebody took them in, and they revealed themselves as Zeus and Hermes. And then they destroyed all the people that turned them away and rewarded the guy that let him stay there. Remember that when we read this story. Anyway, Fernando writes, Ramsey was impressed and began to realize Acts might be a valuable source of historical information. In fact, the chapter he wrote on this, describing what happened to him in his study of Acts 14, was called The First Change of Judgment. He starts unearthing these, these finds and looking at the text of Acts, and he's like, whoa, hold on. Maybe this is actual history. Well, then he writes, the more I study the narrative of Acts and the more I've learned, the more I admire it and the better I understand. I set out to look for truth in the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, and I found it here in Acts. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. That's what we're reading here actual history. And what are those that come across the passage and they're like, oh, you see, this, this is why the Bible is, just, is, is wrong about everything. No. People have said that, and then it turns out, no, we were wrong, and it was right. And so when I come across what seems to be a contradiction, I research it sometimes, and if I really just can't find a good answer, I just think, well, maybe next time I come across this, I'll find a good answer. But the Bible's been right too many times for me to doubt it. Well, Iconium, he traveled another 20 miles southwest to Lystra. This was off the main road that went through that area. This was more, a little more of a back road that he took. Some people wonder this, why Lystra? Why did he go that way? Why did he run there 
from the, the group that was trying to kill him. Well, you know, Daryl Bach writes, the area of Lystra had a reputation of being somewhat rustic, where the people were not very learned. <laughs> so they go from this cultural, these centers of Antioch and Iconium down to Lystra. This is like Paul went from Cincinnati to Columbus to Circleville. <laughs> hey, y'all, welcome to Circleville. <laughs> Have you heard about our pumpkin festival? <laughs> it's just a different kind of town, okay? Why Lystra? Well, God obviously had a message for the people of Lystra. There were probably a lot of reasons, but one thing God was doing here that we wouldn't, we'll not find out about until later, when we come across Acts 16.1, on the second missionary journey, it says Paul went back to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. Isn't that interesting? In this backwater town with a very, very minority Greek, uh, a, a very not influential Jewish population, okay? These were pagans, very little knowledge of the scriptures. There was a young man, probably his early teens, with a Greek dad and a Jewish mom and a Jewish grandma who was learning his word, and who Paul came along and led to Christ. It says in 2 Timothy 1-2, Timothy, my true son in the faith. He would have led Timothy to Christ on his first missionary journey. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy, perhaps his lifelong best friend, his greatest ministry partner, co-author of nine or ten of the 13 letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Look what he writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the last three cities they visited. Timothy saw Paul's suffering that he's going to undergo here at Lystra. And he's going to hear about the other places as well. Yeah, this is why our ministries need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Well, it says in Lystra, there was a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth, and he'd never walked. Okay? He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him. And he saw that that man had faith to be healed. He gets some sort of a word from the Lord, apparently. I don't know how he knew this. I guess people with the healing gift can tell. And he called out, stand up on your feet. This guy who'd never walked. It's very much like what Peter did in Acts 3. And again, like the guy in Acts 3, the man jumps to his feet and began to walk. <laughs> so this dude's legs work now. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, which Paul and Barnabas couldn't speak, which explains why they didn't know what was happening. All of a sudden, the people are so excited, they break out into a language that Paul and Barnabas don't know. The gods have come down to us in human form. Remember the story from Ovid's Metamorphoses? They're like, they're back. <laughs> Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. It's even the same two gods. Barnabas may have been a little older than Paul. Paul did all the talking. Well, the priest of Zeus, remember the priest of Zeus inscriptions? Whose temple was just outside the city brought bulls and wreaths 
to the city gates. They start getting some animals together. They're putting like a little, uh, little wreath on the bull's neck because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they don't know what's happening at first because they don't speak the Lyconian language. But at a certain point, they realize what is going down. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the, the crowd. And so these primitive people, they look and they're like, the gods are here. It's like that scene in Return of the Jedi, you know, where they think C-3PO is a god and they, the Ewoks begin worshiping him and stuff. <laughs> well, in Jedi, they took advantage of the gullibility of the local natives to get some advantage for themselves. Here, Paul and Barnabas, they explicitly deny the deity being attributed to them. They start by tearing their clothes, which would have gotten their attention. It was a sign of grief. <laughs> Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. What we're going to see here is a very short summary of Paul's first speech addressed to a non-Jewish audience. Very different from the speech last week in the synagogue. This one, he doesn't mention the scriptures. He doesn't even mention Jesus. No, he's got to have a different starting point because they had a different starting point. And so he starts with, we are humans just like you. There's a difference between us and what you call the gods. In fact, he says, we're bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. There's no gods. There's, there's God. And your religion and these sacrifices, what does he call it? These worthless things. Not a very politically correct statement. And that's exactly what they are. I mean, they thought Zeus, that he was the one that hurls lightning bolts down. Hardly anybody believes that today. That's not where lightning bolts come from. No, he says, you're just wrong. There's no Zeus, no Hermes. Offering sacrifices to, to them is offering sacrifices to a figment of your imagination. Instead, and you're putting your eternal destiny in their hands. Why don't you put your hope in the living God, the God who does something, the God who's acted in history? He says, he made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. He goes back to creation. He says, you know, in the past, he let all nations go their own way. This is the best explanation I know of for the problem of evil. God created people to follow him, and yet he's given us choice. And he says, you don't have to follow me. I'm not going to force you into this relationship against your will. And so he's given us choice. And that's the explanation for evil in this world. Uh, evil that God is going to, he's going to, he's going to make things right at some point. But it says God has not left himself without testimony. Even though you guys didn't have the Old Testament, God has still left a witness on the stand to testify to his, his existence, his presence, and he, you can even learn some things about him through this witness that he has left. And this witness is what Scripture refers to as general revelation. We have special revelation from God in the Scriptures, but we also have general revelation that's available to anyone who has ears to hear, who looks at the created order. He's shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their, their seasons, plenty of food. He fills your hearts with joy. He says, where do you think all that, that, that rain came from? Why do you think there's such an orderliness to the seasons? Where do you think the heavens and the earth and all that is in them came from? Like you mentioned in verse 15. He said, that's God, and you know it. 
He has not left himself without a witness. And so what is this testimony that God has left? He has not left himself without testimony. He really points two directions. One direction he points to is we look out at the creation. And scripture teaches this in other places as well. We can look out and we can see that God is there and we can even learn not just that he's there, but he's powerful, that he's personal, and that he's a moral God because we have a sense of right and wrong, but we'll come to that in a minute. We look out at creation and we can see that God is there. Now, I wish I had several weeks worth of CTs to elaborate on this. We're in the middle of a class right now where we just spent five three-hour classes going into detail on evidence for God. 15 hours. I'm not even going to have 15 minutes to spend on this. So I'm just, I'm just going to give you a little something to whet your appetite. One, uh, an argument I really like and also that is short. And if you want more, we've got a free book. If it's your first time here, we've also got several other books for sale out there that you can pick up to read more on this. And so I'm, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to show a short three-minute video on what's known as the fine-tuning argument, one of the awesome, most recent advances in the argument from design. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result, no stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. 
wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. Yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling, these numbers that they throw around. Roger Penrose talks about that, the last number that they talked about there. Here's what he says. One part in 10 to the power of 10 to the 123. Our minds cannot fathom that. He says, you can't write it out in the usual decimal way because even if you were to put a zero on every particle in the universe, there would not even be enough particles to do the job. In other words, just for that one constant... You take every, okay, particles, that's, that's smaller than atoms, okay? Atoms are made of subatomic particles. If you could take every single one of those and put them in a giant hopper and just, you know, turn the crank to randomize them all, and then you reach in and you pull out a single particle, and you just happen to pick the right one. That's what we're talking about with just one of the constants, the, the range, the likelihood that it would be just what it needed to be for life to exist. And there's dozens of them. There's dozens of these constants. And some people are like, oh, well, uh, evolution explains that, right? No, it can't explain that. Because what we're talking about are factors that had to be present at the point of the Big Bang, at the beginning. This is not survival of the fittest and, you know, species were reproducing and the fittest ones survived and adapted. No. This is from the very beginning, unless somehow you've got universes mating with one another and having baby universes, <laughs> which would also be a finely tuned process, I would think. <laughs> no, even if you say there's, there's trillions of universes and one just happened to be right, where would we get a universe generating mechanism? And the chances are so low here. And what I like about this argument, I think there's a lot of arguments from science and a lot of arguments from the created order that are persuasive. But I like this one. One, because it's new. Two, because it's so persuasive. And three, because it's um, some of the typical arguments around, you know, judgment calls related to evolution and things like that. They're just not in play here. Okay. Let's take another one. We look out at creation, but also he says this. He says, God is also one that fills your hearts with joy. And so I imagine he probably talked a little bit more about this point as well. You know, what scripture says is we look at not just out at creation, but we can look into our own hearts and minds and we can see evidence of a creator. Evidence of a creator. There's internal evidence. You know, when I look into my mind, we look into our own minds, we realize some things. We realize I'm conscious of someone called me. In a world that's just physical, chemical reactions, there would be no such thing as you. Your, your brain is just a complex, evolved series of reactions, physical reactions. I can think, I know there's such a thing as right and wrong. That's something we all know, that I'm having thoughts, thoughts that correspond to reality. 
also the, the, our conscience, that deep down we might have different definitions of what's right and wrong, but everybody's got some sort of a, a concept of right and wrong. God says, where do you think that came from? I'm a moral God. I defined right and wrong, and I gave you a, a deep down sense that there's such a thing as right and wrong, there's such a thing as guilt. God says there's something special about humans, that we would, this is why we believe in human rights, human equality. This is why we would afford privileges and rights to humans that we would not extend to mosquitoes or rocks. Because humans, what scripture says, they're made in the image of God. My choices are real. In a purely physical world, there's no such thing as I get to choose this or that. In any sense that we think of that. All right, it, just like, you know, if I drop this, this pack of gum, you know, it falls to the ground. It, there was no choice on the gum's part as to whether it was going to do that. You know, I had a choice as to whether to drop it, but this, it was just simply responding to the laws of physics. And a lot of thought by atheist naturalists, people that believe that the material world is all that there is, a lot of thought has gone into this whole concept of free choice, and the basic conclusion is there is no such thing as free choice. It's all an illusion, in spite of what everything inside of us tells us. Check out Nancy Piercy on this. She says, even the great Albert Einstein was caught in this dilemma. On the one hand, he writes, human beings and their thinking, feeling, and acting are not free, but are as causally bound as the stars in their motions. Just... They're in their orbits. They're responding to physical laws. We're the same way. We think we're choosing, but we're not. But then what does he say? Yet on the other hand, he said, I'm compelled to act as if free will existed because I want to live in a civilized society. I must act responsibly. He's got his theory of how he's explained away all the evidence God has left within him. And then he has the reality of how he actually is living his life. What about Marvin Minsky, MIT professor, it's a pretty respected scientific institution. He's best known for his pithy phrase that the human brain is nothing but a three-pound computer made of meat. <laughs> Obviously, computers do not have the power of choice. The implication is that neither do humans. Surprisingly, however, Minsky then asks, does this mean we must embrace the modern scientific view and put aside the ancient myth of voluntary choice? The ancient myth. No, he says, we can't do that. Why not? Minsky goes on. No matter that the physical world provides no room for freedom of will, that concept is essential to our models of the mental realm. We cannot ever give it up. We're virtually forced to maintain that belief even though we know it's false. So you've got the way up here where he's explained away the evidence God has left within him, and then you have the way he actually has to live in the real world. False, that is, according to Minsky's materialist worldview. That's right. There's one other thing we see when we look into our own minds. We realize that I long for meaning, purpose, and love. That's another thing God has left us with, the so-called God-shaped hole. Again, a few quotes from Piercy, quoting from another MIT prof, Rodney Brooks, his book, Flesh and Machines. Brooks writes that a human being is nothing but a machine a big bag of skin full of biomolecules interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. In ordinary life, of course, it's difficult to actually see people that way, right? 
But he says, when I look at my children, I can, when I force myself, see that they are machines. Is that how he treats them, though? Of course not. He says, that's not how I treat them. I interact with them on an entirely different level. They have my unconditional love, the furthest one might be able to get from rational analysis. How does he reconcile such a heart-wrenching cognitive dissonance? He doesn't. He ends by saying, I maintain two sets of inconsistent beliefs. Let that sink in. I appreciate his honesty, although what he's really describing is hypocrisy. He's an honest hypocrite, as are so many of us. Up here, he's got his theory, which declares obviously that we are big bags of skin full of biomolecules. And if he really forces himself to look at his kids that way, then he can see them that way. But he says, at the end of the day, I just have to maintain two sets of inconsistent beliefs. The one I've come up with to explain away God and the one I have to use to live in the real world because God has designed me a certain way. He's given up on any attempt to reconcile his theory with his experience. He's abandoned all hope for a unified, logically consistent worldview. He has no defense. And this, she says, is the tragedy of the postmodern age. The things that matter most in life, that are necessary for a humane society, ideals like moral freedom, human dignity, even loving our own children, have been reduced to nothing but useful fictions. And so I think if Paul was going to re-give re this talk today, he might update it a little bit. He might say something like this, yet God has not left himself without testimony. He's given you the gravitational constant, the cosmological constant. He's perfectly distributed the initial mass and energy of the universe. Not to mention the couple dozen other finely tuned constants necessary for life. Oh, he also put the earth the perfect distance from the sun and caused it to spin and rotate at just the right speed. Not only that, though, he's shown you that you're really you, that you really have the power to choose, that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that there's something special by humans made in the image of God, and that love isn't just a chemical reaction in your brain. And he's given you a longing for your creator such that you won't be satisfied until you come back home to him. Our telescopes are declaring the glory of God. Our microscopes are declaring the glory of God. Our supercomputers are declaring the glory of God in your own soul. You look inside yourself, there's plenty there for you to see the truth of what God has revealed. He has not left himself without a witness. Well, even with these words, Luke writes, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Even with this explanation. Well... At this point, some Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and won the crowd over. So these, some of these guys had traveled over 100 miles to the city of Lystra to find Paul and Barnabas. That's how threatened they felt and how upset they were by the impact they were having in their communities. And what did they do? They stoned Paul. They stoned him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.25, once I was stoned. Okay, that's not the kind of stone that we would talk about. <laughs> Okay, this is the bad kind of stoning, okay? <laughs> the kind I referred to earlier. I mean, for Luke just, to, just to, to write this so abruptly, it's terrifying. 
They dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. He must have been really messed up, unconscious. Imagine how Barnabas and the other, I don't know where Barnabas was during this, but imagine how the believers there felt when they saw Paul get killed. Or what looked like it, what was convincing enough for the guys that walked 110 miles to get there to kill him. But after the disciples had gathered around him, it says, he got up. I guess he wasn't dead yet. And what does he do next? He went back into the city. (laughs) That's what you call tough right there. Not backing down from a fight. It may have also been too late in the day to leave. But he goes back into the city. He did leave the next day as well. So the next day, Barnabas and him left for Derby after setting things in order in Lystra. And at Derby, they preached the gospel in that city and one large number of disciples. Yeah, so they head the 35 miles east to Derby, an unpaved road. And then at, at Derby, they've come to the end of their journey. It's time to go home. Do they take that really nice road right there down through Tarsus, his hometown, and around the corner to Antioch? No. It says instead, they went back to Lystra, where he got stoned, Iconium, where they wanted to stone him, and Antioch, where they ran him out of town before traveling 110 miles to stone him. Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Antioch, an extra 170 miles on this missionary journey on foot just to hit those cities on foot. Why would they do that? Because they wanted to take care of their people. They were strengthening the disciples. They were encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Paul would write in the letter to the Galatians, look, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus at the close of that letter. They saw him suffer. And they said, look, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Let's not forget the suffering that Jesus promised people. You saw it in us, now go and do likewise. And they appointed elders in each church. Paul never left a church without knowing who's in charge. He recognized spiritual leaders, charged them with the care of the flock, and with prayer and fasting, committed those elders to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. There's a certain point where you just got to pray and leave things in God's hands. And it says, after going through Pisidia, they came down into Pamphylia, down to Perga and Italia. They preached the word there at Perga and Italia. And then they caught a boat It says, back to Antioch, where they started, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Over 1,400 miles on this first missionary journey. That's a long way. That's a lot for a year and a half's worth of work. And on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And that's Acts 14. Yeah, Lord, you're the God of truth. You've given us the spirit of truth. Thank you that um, we don't believe in you in spite of the evidence, Lord. But if we really look into it, we can, we can believe in you because of the evidence. Yeah. But we know, Lord, too, that evidence can only take us so far that ultimately there's got to be um, a personal encounter. So I pray for people here that maybe have seen some evidence or are opening the door to you. I pray that they would call out to you in their hearts. They would at least ask you if you're you're there, Lord. But if if they're ready, I pray that they would put their trust in Jesus and invite him into their life, ask him for his forgiveness. 
and that they would that anybody here who's experiencing doubts, Lord, that we wouldn't just be content to push the doubts down, but that we would get answers. Yeah. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.